Chapter 25 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. What sad mutations, what strange events had thrown their deep shadows over an existence which had reflected nothing but sunshine when I wrote that little drama in Paris for the gratification of my taste, when my young sisters and I formed it at Melrose for the amusement of our friends. Well it was that no prophetic visage presages the future that awaited me, and yet to that future career the production and performance of this very play formed a first easy step of preparation, unknown, unconscious, yet distinctly ordered preparation. The stage appointments of Galzara, as represented in Philadelphia, at the mansion of my brother-in-law, were even more unique than ours had been at Melrose. Our scenery for the Melrose representation had been painted in Paris, and yet it could scarcely compare in tasteful execution with the counterfeit presentation of groves and gardens which came from the hands of the scenic artist of the chestnut street theatre whom my brother-in-law employed the scenes were delineated with a finished delicacy which challenged the most minute inspection on the drop curtain was admirably depicted a romantic view of the scenery on the rhine the stage accessories were richer than they could have been in any public theatre the costuming was strictly correct and as graceful as it could well be fashioned again our father sat in the centre of the assembled guests to witness the performance of his children in him how little outward change was wrought by the years that had flitted lightly over his head since he first smiled approval upon the little drama at melrose with a few added snows upon his brow no vigour had been taken away his winter in its evergreen blossoming was too kindly for frost and youth had been left behind the radiant halo of a fresh and buoyant spirit by his side sat as before our gentle second mother whose children were now most valuable additions to our domestic dramatic corps again the curtain rose upon zuleika and fatima reclining at her seat the zuleika was the same as on the play's first representation but the sister may then just budding into girlhood was now a wife and mother in her acting there was more intensity and reality than formerly but it had lost none of its unaffected simplicity fatima was most sweetly personated by a dear friend gozara which i had enacted in the early days was now more powerfully embodied by my sister julia then our little amara the precocious child grown into womanhood presented one of the rare instances where the promise of a forward spring was fulfilled just as she passed the verge of childhood we had decked her as a bride and she was now a youthful wife and mother the boy amareth wove to-night was our young sister emily the eldest of the four sisters given us by our second mother her oriental countenance which heaven formed amongst those things 
that needed no praising, was even more suited to the Turkish boy than little Julia's had been. Emily was Julia's pupil, as Julia had been mine. The new Emerith acted with a naturalness and spirit which at least approached the personation of her tutor. The simple part of Katinka was rendered by our little sister Grace, Emily's junior by two years, in a manner which her own name could best express. Our hostess, my sister Emma, was the dark-eyed Aisha, and did her best to look excessively malignant and wicked in personating the indispensable villain of the plot, an element not easily omitted in the drama, where the distinctions of light and shade are as essential as in a picture. But our Aisha created a deeper impression through her penitence than by her revengeful triumphs. Her tears drew tears more readily than her evidently fictitious anger excited sympathy. Could I assume the tone of author-critic in reviewing the performances of my sisters and forget for a moment, what should I be the most unwilling often to forget, the tie between us, I could give a more adequate description of the personations. Our very kinship throws a restraint over my commendation of what all commended, and prevents my dwelling upon the gifts of mind and person which justice would force me to paint in glowing colors had the performers of Galzara been strangers. But this I may say, that as I watch their embodiments of my youthful and imperfect creations, the discomforts and perils of the seventeen days' journey over frozen rivers and mountains of snow faded into insignificance. During the performance, I heard Dr. M. of Philadelphia, a critic of indisputable taste, whisper to a friend, If Mrs. S., my sister Julia, were on the stage, Mrs. Mawat would have to look out for her laurels. Proud as I felt of my sister's talents, I could not repress a half-shudder and a middle exclamation of thankfulness that the happy circumstances by which she was surrounded rendered no event more unlikely than a summons for her to translate the stubbornness of fortune to such a use. Heaven shield her from the weariness and trials of the professional actress, and never let stage dust fall upon her young head, her fresh nature, was my fervent ejaculation. And I say this, though no one reveres the profession more than I do, or entertain stronger convictions that the vocation of actor may be made to command respect, may be rendered honorable in the persons of humblest as of highest members of the profession. The representation of Golzara was succeeded by a ball, and the occasion was one of which many lips have declared would not be easily forgotten. Soon after the New Year's Eve fete, the sisters again dispersed, and others returned to their homes, and I resumed my professional duties. The first engagement this year was at Richmond, Virginia. The ill effects of our hazardous western journey, with its fatigues and manifold exposures to cold, now rendered themselves apparent. I almost entirely lost the use of my voice but the engagement was an eminently prosperous one, and I yielded to the entreaties of my managers, who begged that I would not allow my increasing hoarseness to cause an interruption. 
thus was sown the seed of future bronchitis in richmond we were again snowed up the roads impassable the rivers frozen after a week's detention we braved a repetition of our western experiences and made the journey to baltimore partially in stage-coaches and partially in open sleighs on this occasion however we were accompanied by a young nephew who having just arrived at the age of transition between youth and manhood when the spirit of chivalry is newly enkindled in the breast proved the most energetic and efficient of escorts i had promised to revisit boston and fulfil a long engagement commencing early in february it was a city to which i was always gladly returned on my way there i acted a week in baltimore and another in providence in boston i performed four successive weeks in spite of the most painful hoarseness it was a sad annoyance to find all high notes suddenly cut off and to be forced to use sepulchral tones even in light comedy imparting to rosalind and beatrice raven-like intonations and not particularly hilarious though to be sure rosalind in her pedestrian journey to the forest of arden might have had her vocal cords injured by inclement weather and beatrice eavesdropping in the bower might have had her lungs affected at the same moments as her heart i unwisely disregarded the persuasions of my physician dr c who recommended perfect rest i had engaged to appear in new york the beginning of april and only intended to allow my voice a couple weeks of repose one afternoon in the middle of march i proposed to my sister may that we should visit brookline on horseback we were both exceedingly fond of equestrian exercise and had not rode together since the bright days at melrose when silk and queen mab used to bear us over the level roads she consented but my artist brother mr t at whose house i was residing chanced to be too unwell to accompany us we were attended by the master of the stables from which our carriages were usually supplied the horses we rode belonged to a riding school a heavy snow just melting made the roads rather slippery nevertheless we enjoyed an invigoratingly delightful gallop to brookline paid a short visit to a sister who lived there and were returning home in exuberant spirits passing up tremont road just as we reached bolsalton street the horses made a forcible attempt to turn the corner the street led to their stable my horse had shied several times on the road and evinced a tolerable unruly spirit all three horses now began to prance and grow unmanageable we could not force them on suddenly my horse plunged and reared we were just opposite the winthrop house and a crowd had by this time assembled nobody interfered as i appeared to be self-possessed and capable of managing the fractious pony he reared again and again the third time i could feel his feet sliding in the slippery mud he lost his equilibrium and fell backwards directly upon me i remember the crushing sensation the lightning-like thought i am killed and nothing after that until i found myself lying in a parlour 
a dense crowd of faces bending over me, and around me a confusion of voices, and of feet running to and fro. I was just wondering whether I was in this world or in a better, when one pale, terrified face, pressed closer than the other, dispelled my doubts. It was my sister's. I was incapable of moving or of speaking except with great difficulty, but I had possessed sufficient presence of mind to say, send for Dr. C. He was my physician and a valued friend. It was a somewhat singular that the two physicians, Dr. B and Dr. T, chanced to be driving by at the moment the accident occurred and witnessed the double fall. They immediately proffered their aid. My brother-in-law was quickly apprised of the mishap, and with the supplementary information that I was probably killed, the news reporters deprived me of life in the most unceremonious manner. That very evening, telegraphic dispatches flew all over the country, some announcing that I was dangerously injured, some that I had departed from this life. It was through these unexpected channel that news reached the ears of my father and sisters. It seemed marvelous, so say the many who beheld the accident, that I was not instantly deprived of earthly existence, but I was only severely crushed and received a more troublesome than dangerous injury in the left side, one which Touchstone objects to regarding as legitimate sport for ladies. I, speaking from experience, heartily agreed with him. I retained perfect consciousness when I was carried through the streets upon a sofa, beside which walked the two physicians and my brother-in-law. I could hear trampling feet of the crowd, which every moment swelled in number. I distinguished the constant query of newcomers, demanding, Is she killed? Is she quite dead? And the answers, sometimes dubious, sometimes inclining to the affirmative. Once or twice I experienced a strong inclination to contradict my own departure from the body. Dr. C. soon arrived, and I was attended by him and Dr. T. For six weeks I was confined to my room, but in eight I had almost entirely recovered. My Boston friends addressed me the following letter, headed by His Honor the Mayor of the City. To Mrs. Anna Cora Mollett, Boston, May 13th, 1852. Madam, the undersigned, your friends, and friends of the drama are desirous of offering to you a public expression of your services and your worth in the sphere of dramatic art. To be at once a writer of successful plays and a popular actress is to enjoy a distinction which few can reach. But this is not all that can be said of you. You have not brought these honors with the price of better things. You have moved with simple dignity along the slippery paths of praise and success. When we have seen you embodying your own conceptions of tenderness and truth, we have felt that the charm of your performance flowed from the fact that your words and your voice were but imperfect expressions of yourself. And now that you have lately stood on the edge of another life, we feel that we should welcome you back to ours with more cordial greetings and more earnest voices. 
the manager of the Howard Athenaeum has generously consented to place his house at the disposition of your friends for the purpose of giving you a complimentary benefit, if agreeable to your wishes, upon such evening of next week as may suit your convenience. Benjamin Seaver, John H. Wilkins, Samson Reed, John P. Uber, George S. Hillard, Henry W. Longfellow, E. P. Whipple, Henry T. Parker, P. W. Chandler, Edward Bates, Thomas Lamb, E. P. Clark, T. G. Appleton, William Cole, John Ware, Horatio Woodman, Edmund Grattan, A. W. Faxler, Jr., John Hall, F. Sargent, Robert Shaw. I could not read this letter without emotion, but of too mixed a character to be framed into language. The paramount sensation was of thankfulness that I had accomplished sufficient in my profession to render my well-being a matter of interest, my escape from imminent peril a source of rejoicing to minds whose good report was so intrinsically valuable. I returned an answer expressive of my grateful acknowledgments, that is, I attempted to express them, but very possibly failed, and accepted the complimentary benefit. I requested permission to select the character of Parthenia in Mrs. Lovell's translation of Ingomar. This was one of my favorite embodiments. There is an intimate delicacy, an unconscious goodness, a depth of feeling, a high-toned sense of right pervading the poet's creation of Parthenia that I found irresistibly attractive. Perhaps, too, I liked the play on account of its thorough exemplification of woman's mysterious influence over the sterner sex. Somebody has laughingly called Ingomar a covert woman's rights drama. I fancy that few men would object to the very obvious right of a woman to Parthenize without seriously trenching upon their sphere of action. The complimentary benefit took place on the 21st day of May, 1852. It was one of those occasions which are written on the pages of life's record in golden letters. But when I stood upon the stage before that brilliant crowd and heard the welcome, warmer, longer, more heart-emanating and heart-stirring than it had ever been before, my self-possession for the second time since I first trod upon the stage, wholly forsook me. I think there must have been something melting and overpowering in the atmosphere of that particular theater, for it was upon that stage five years before, when I appeared for the last time previous to our sailing for Europe, that I was overcome by a similar, ungovernable emotion and those are the only two instances of irrepressible agitation in my eight years of professional experience. I was heartily vexed with myself, but I suppose there are moments in the lives of everyone when the barrier of self-control is broken through by genuine feeling. Mr. Wiseman Marshall impersonated Ingomar. During my previous engagements, he had rendered the character very popular with the Boston audience. I had enacted Parthenia a great number of nights, but I believe the play's repetition awoke no dissenting voice. In the second act, 
Parthenia weaves a garland while she prattles to the savage, who is becoming humanized and Parthenia-ized as he watches her. The flowers on that evening were natural ones, abundantly supplied, and I wove a garland of some length, which was sent to a beloved friend whose illness prevented her from being present. After the benefit, I was induced to fulfill another engagement at the Howard Athenaeum of a fortnight's duration. My next appearance was in Cincinnati. I then acted several weeks in Louisville. That city is always associated in my mind with Henry Clay. It was there that I bade him adieu for the last time, and now, when I visited Louisville again, the bells were tolling from every steeple, the streets draperied with black, for Henry Clay's funeral was passing. His mortal remains were on their way to their Ashland resting place. We were residing at the Louisville Hotel. Our drawing-room windows fronted the street. Heavy folds of unrelieved sable were stretched story after story from every window but one and that one was ours. There we hung festoons of white drapery, intermingled with violet bouquets, and garlands of white and purple violets, and ribbons of violet, of black, and of white. The whitely decked windows shone out strangely amidst the surrounding blackness, and many who knew that it had been decorated by one who loved and honored Henry Clay, and had been to him an object of openly acknowledged interest, asked for an explanation. With our snow-white emblems, flowered mingled, we made an offering to his memory as to one that of one who was still living, not sleeping an unconscious slumber for ages, not annihilated, not separated from us forever, but only translated to a higher sphere of use, only shut out from us by a translucent gate, which we, too, would soon enter. And so we hung our windows, not with the blackness which represents the darkness that belongs to the grave, but with symbols of living freshness, gladness, purity of the new life, not with the insignia of death, but with the tokens of the resurrection. The ensuing morning, the Louisville Journal gave an explanation of our tribute to the memory of Henry Clay. After this engagement, which ended in July, I returned east to rest during the month of August. My professional labors were resumed in September. In Buffalo, I commenced my engagement on the opening night of the Metropolitan Theater, newly erected. The opening of a theater is always a period of great excitement. The gradual completion that looks like incompletion, the apparent impossibility, even at the last rehearsal, of accomplishing all that remains to be done, the jostling activity of the stage carpenters, the rapid painting of the scenic artists, the perplexity of the actors who cannot hear, through the sound of the hammers, their own voices rehearsing, the flurry of the stage manager, the flitting to and fro of the architect, the wondering of all how the new temple of art, awaiting its consecration, will look when lighted up. The freshness, the bustle, the confusion, form a combination of stirring elements that diffuse themselves through the whole theater in a day, and at night are communicated to the audience. In the evening, the throng in front of the building became so dense 
that the door of the theater had to be thrown open to admit them while the scaffolding was still upon the stage. The audience were thus made witness of the most painful accident. One of the carpenters, in attempting to execute his work as quickly as possible, fell from the scaffolding and was seriously injured. The curtain rose upon the members of the company assembled upon the stage. Then was sung the national anthem of Hail Columbia. At its conclusion, I entered and delivered the inaugural address, written by Anson G. Chester, Esquire. The audience responded heartily to such passages as the following. To do its, the dramas, good use, we henceforth set apart this fair creation of the hand of art. Within these walls shall virtue ever rule. This be her throne, her altar, her school. Here will we seek her precepts to defend, and, while we please, will elevate and mend. So shall the drama's first intentions find a fit translation to the modern mind. Almost every one of the above lines was interrupted by an emphatic burst of applause, distinctly showing what class of performances the public were prepared to patronize. After the opening address rose a loud demand for Mr. T, the architect of the theater, to whose talents and skills several edifices in New York bear witness. He certainly had erected a theater in admirable taste and deserved public thanks. The worthy architect had been apprised that he must acknowledge the kindness of the audience by a few appropriate words, a necessity which caused him great alarm. His mind had been kept on the stretch for many days and nights in superintending the completion of the theater. He had obtained no rest and was now thoroughly worn out with excitement and fatigue. After a protracted and clamorous summons, the curtain drew back and Mr. T. tremblingly appeared, took a couple of steps upon the stage and made several nervous attempts to execute a bow, faltered out, gentlemen and ladies staggered back two steps taking him out of sight and panic-stricken fainted away i was completing my toilette for the play and hearing the sudden cessation of applause from the audience and a confusion behind the scenes i feared some new accident had occurred as soon as I was dressed, I hastened to inquire and received the above relation from the stage manager, Mr. Smith. The accomplished but timid architect was joked unmercifully about his attack of stage fright. Some of his friends declared that he only fainted because he had accidentally said gentlemen and ladies instead of giving precedence to the latter, and the terror at remembrance of women's rights thus rudely infringed, had overpowered him. After this, I fulfilled an engagement in Syracuse. In passing through Boston, I acted one night and engaged to return with the new year. My next engagement was in Philadelphia, but a severe attack of bronchitis rendered this fulfillment impossible. The disease seemed singularly prevalent in all theaters during that season. I several times assisted at rehearsals where three or four of the actors were so seriously affected that they could not venture to use their voices in the morning. The little power left was reserved for night. 
At rehearsal, they went through the action of the play in dumb show, standing, kneeling, pacing the stage, crossing from right to left or left to right, as the business of the scene demanded, but in perfect silence, while the prompter read aloud the words of their parts. It reminded me of the ludicrous game of dumb orator. My next engagement, commencing in November, was to take place at the Broadway Theater. My home in New York was at the residence of my brother-in-law, Dr. T. The bronchial affection from which I was suffering had been very much relieved by his medical skill, and I was able to meet my engagement at the time appointed. I opened in Parthenia, and that night used my voice with tolerable facility. But the next, while I was enacting Rosalind, the power of speech left me entirely. At its forceful return, through my strong volition, it seemed as though somebody else's voice had been mysteriously substituted for mine. The engagement thus became an exceedingly painful one. I was urged to complete it, if possible. How I was enabled to do so appears a matter of wonder. All that medical science could effect for me was constantly counteracted by my nightly exertions. On some evening, the utterance of every sentence was a separate misery. I heartily rejoiced when the engagement came to a close. In December, I have recovered sufficiently to appear in Baltimore. A singular presentation was made to me during this engagement on my benefit night, that of a young fawn garlanded with flowers. It was a testimonial from the Fireman's Library Association. The fawn was first taken to my dressing-room and then brought upon the stage during the comedy of the honeymoon. Lopez delivered it to Juliana in the cottage scene. My new pet followed me about and played his part to perfection. When the Duke and Lopez were conversing, I seated myself on a footstool beside the table, and the gentle fawn ate out of my hand, varying the feast by munching my curls, greatly to the amusement of the audience. This by-play did not interrupt the dialogue between the Duke and the countryman, who occupied the front of the stage. On the same evening was presented to me, I believe from the same source, the most exquisite floral offering that I ever received. It was a star, about a foot and a half or two foot in height and in breadth, composed of double camellias of various hues, the white predominating. Both sides of the star bouquet were alike, and the framework on which it was composed was rendered invisible by thickly clustering flowers. It was handed from the boxes to A. W. Fenno, Esquire, who supported me during the engagement, and placed by him in my arms. The rare beauty and delicacy of the gift gave me much pleasure, but I was especially charmed that the flowers had been woven into the form of one of the chief emblems of that country whose daughter I was proud to be called. I returned to Boston, according to promise, in January, and acted several weeks. My voice had slightly improved. At times I could use it without difficulty, but the least nervousness or anxiety was the signal for the departure of every smoother tone. My southern tour was now to commence. 
In Washington, I appeared for the first time, re-engaging twice. I next performed in Richmond, and then proceeded to Mobile. It was my first visit to that city since my return from Europe. I had abundant and most flattering cause to believe that I had not been forgotten. Rank that engagement amongst those which I shall ever look back upon with truest pleasure. In New Orleans, we had violent storms of rain through the larger half of the engagement. The climate had an injurious effect upon my health, and it was with difficulty that I struggled through the stipulated number of performances. Armand was produced here as in every other city in which I performed. Fashion was also enacted at the St. Charles Theatre, and repeated several nights, drawing larger houses than any other play. The comedy was exceedingly well acted. The Adam Truman of Mr. Lynn won him high and deserved economums. The Snobson of Mr. DeBar more than once overcame my gravity of countenance. I was content to enact Gertrude, as the character obviated all necessity for exertion, exertion which I was nightly becoming more unable to make. End of chapter 25